Thank you all for being here. Let's let's get started. As the moderator, I am instructed to tell you to please turn off your cell phones. Um, so presidents are supposed to have doctrines, and the pithier, the better. Uh, maybe the, the first one comes from our first president, Washington's great rule that it is the true policy of the United States to clear, steer clear of permanent alliances. Other presidential foreign policy doctrines include the Monroe Doctrine, which could be summed up as keep your hands off the Western Hemisphere, uh, Truman Doctrine, containment via aid to free peoples, resisting communist subjugation, uh, Reagan, roll back the Soviets with aid to freedom fighters, Bush, the forward strategy of freedom plus will hit you first. Uh, it was never quite clear what the Obama doctrine was, though in the Atlantic Monthly article on the subject, uh, he was quoted describing his approach as, don't do stupid shit. <laughs> now, Donald Trump's approach, well, if we had to pin it on a bumper sticker, it would likely be America first. Uh, his national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, describes the Trump doctrine as pragmatic realism, to distinguish it from idealistic realism, I guess. It's uh, one of those redundancies that military guys seem uh, quite fond of, like kinetic military action, <laughs> as opposed to static military action. Uh, McMaster, at any rate, explains that there are problems that are maybe both intractable and of marginal interest to the American people and don't justify investments of blood and, and treasure. So is reduced expenditure of uh, blood and treasure on intractable problems? One question is, is this what uh, foreign policy in the Trump administration looks like after one year? Uh, whatever you think of the wisdom of uh, America first as a as a slogan or a policy, uh, would an American America first foreign policy include boots on the ground in Tongo Tongo, NATO status for Montenegro, or uh, another troop surge uh, designed to make Afghanistan great again? Uh, so do these concepts explain what's going on, or is it a doctrine without a difference? Uh, but the, the emphasis for this particular panel uh, is the national security decision-making process itself. What do we know about how the big decisions get made, uh, it, whether it's at the Situation Room or uh, the Dining Room in Mar-a-Lago? And how does what uh, Trevor called uh, Donald Trump's unique management style, how does that play into all this? Uh, how significant is his delegation of, of power and authority to, quote unquote, my generals uh, in terms of policy outcomes. And our panelists uh, today are particularly well qualified to address these questions, I think. Uh, to, my, to my right is Heather Hurlbert. Hi. Um, she is director of the New Models of, of Policy Change Project at the New America Foundation. Uh, in the Clinton administration, she served as special assistant to the president and as a speechwriter for two secretaries of state. 
Uh, Heather has been named one of Foreign Policy Magazine's FP Top 50, is a regular contributor to New York Magazine, and uh, a frequent commentator on national security issues in places like Foreign Affairs, Politico, Vox, and elsewhere. Uh, to my left is my colleague, not Charlie Savage. Not Charlie Savage. I, I, this is Chris Preble, Vice President for uh, Foreign Policy and Defense at the Cato Institute. I told him to stick with Savage and we use it as an <laughs> adjective. Um, but Chris uh, has uh, done extensive research and, and thought deeply about these issues as well. He's the author of The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance, Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. He's also uh, a veteran, got in on the ground floor of our 30 years war in the Middle East as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy uh, aboard the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. And finally, uh, Ryan Evans. Ryan is the CEO and editor-in-chief of War on the Rocks, which is, uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It's a lively and influential web and multimedia platform covering foreign policy and national defense through a realist lens, both pragmatic and idealistic. Uh, also, uh, Ryan has uh, worked as a deployed U.S. Army civilian in Afghanistan, assigned a British-led task force, Helmand. His web bio notes that he enjoys talking with interesting people, so hopefully he's come to the right place. <laughs> uh, I, I just like to, uh, I, I think we'll, we'll go in that order with some brief introductory remarks, and uh, I may take moderator's privilege to ask a question, and we will get to your questions and conversation immediately after that. So, Heather? Great. Um, let's make sure that this doesn't uh, make any of those frightening noises again. Um, thanks very much, and thanks for putting this conversation together. Um, I'll say in person what I said on Twitter, which was that I was really impressed with Cato for having put together a group of this breadth, and um, that I was quite jealous that my own institution hadn't <laughs> thought to do uh, this kind of a foreign policy at one conference. So um, congratulations to you all, and I'm, I'm very happy to be part of it. I'm going to try to draw out several trends that I think are noteworthy in how uh, foreign and security policy is made in the Trump administration, and then try to highlight which of those are real genuine departures from the American norm, and which of those, though perhaps um, noteworthy, interesting, head-scratching, and or terrifying are not, in fact, all that different from, from what, we're, what we're used to. Um, and the first point I want to make, which um, is going to be sort of a counterintuitive one, is that in many policy areas, um, domestic and international, this administration is actually bucking a 70-year trend of the movement of policymaking authority from the departments to the White House. Um, and that you have had, you know, since the sort of post-depression expansion of the American state, and then even more so in the security and foreign policy realm since the, the creation of the, the superpower state after World War II, you've had the, the gradual or not so gradual um, movement of, of authority and decision making and even policy making impetus into the White House and the concomitant growth of the White House staff and um, presidential historians have written quite a bit about this. There's quite a bit of theorizing 
about why this is so. Um, and I think we will, uh, you're going to have to wait another couple of years before I offer you a theory on why this is so. But um, overall, um, in the Trump administration, initiative has gone back to the agencies. And you see, um, and in, in some ways, the, the Pentagon is kind of the poster child for this, where you've had the explicit statement that the previous administration, but again, the previous administration following a trend of the administrations before it, had taken um, quite a bit of initiative even down to the, the field level has been, has been widely remarked on, and I'm sure Ryan will have a lot more to say about that than I would. And the, this administration has made a great show of saying, no, no, we are giving the commanders in the field back the authority. Now, of course, the obvious exception to that rule is the State Department. And um, I have to say that from my point of view, it is simply too early to understand whether, uh, whether that is because of other of the personalities involved of McMaster on the one hand and the particular idiosyncrasy that is the Tillerson State Department on the other hand, or whether that has to do with a particular set of strong feelings that the president and people around him have about the State Department and secondarily USAID that they shouldn't be let out on their own. Um, but it is, it is an interesting note that I think state would be the one exception um, in terms of cabinet agencies that, are, that, that is not enjoying um, more autonomy than it, than it had under previous administrations. Now, at the same time, um, we're talking about, we're not talking about agencies that are the same agencies that they were 18, 20 months ago. That um, by the end of 2017, I believe every agency except Homeland Security and Veterans Affairs, and there may have been a third one, forgive me, um, but all the others had shrunk. So you're, and that is very unevenly distributed across agencies. So in some cases, you're looking at agencies that have significantly more policymaking leeway and significantly less um, intellectual firepower with which to do, to, to implement creative policymaking, and state would absolutely be at the top of that list with half of the senior two ranks of the Foreign Service gone in the last year. So you're um, just surely in terms of thinking about sort of who are the, who are the arms and legs and, and collections of gray matter that are doing the analysis and policymaking, um, there, is, there, is less, there is less career gray matter than there was 20 months ago. And of course, with the um, very, very slow rate of filling of political appointee jobs, there is, there's just simply less gray matter of any of any kind. And this, of course, is not accidental, that it's a very deliberate, you know, sort of this is an easy way to shrink government and particularly to shrink the parts of government that the administration doesn't like. So it's a, it's a very interesting experiment, frankly, in how you preside over a large bureaucracy that you would prefer to be less large and less active. Um, so my second point would be that um, we, this administration has used, has used some policymaking tools that we didn't used to think were policymaking tools. And um, we had some discussion of this in the, uh, in the session downstairs. But I think it has been, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to say we haven't talked enough about Trump's use of social media, because we've certainly talked a lot about Trump's use of social media. But I think it has been insufficiently recognized that that can be used to, to circumscribe policy options. Um, 
in that, you know, there's one case, and the case that was discussed downstairs, where your commanders are busily going out and undertaking negotiations with the Taliban aimed toward getting the Taliban to the table for a big settlement, that you've got that in place first, and then you have the president saying, oh, we're not going to negotiate with the Taliban. Um, it is quite another thing to have a president out on social media saying, we are never going to do X. And then you, as the assistant secretary for X, have to figure out what you're going to do in that context. So we're used to, in the national security establishment, a world where a president and his or her appointees lay down um, restrictions through a national security strategy, through um, a State Department re reform, through um, speeches. Um, and the, so the process by which the boundaries are laid is a process that not just interest groups within government, but interest groups outside of government are, all, are able to weigh in on and have a certain amount of transparency on. And once they've happened, they've happened, and you can generally expect them to stick somewhere between six months and eight years. But the idea that Boundaries for your policymaking are definitely being laid down, but they're coming in response to whatever's being covered on Fox and Friends that morning, um, and they may or may not last more than a news cycle is, um, is, is challenging in a completely non-ideological way for, for policymakers and for, for those who are, are trying to, to um, follow and track US policy. Um, next, I would point out um, a phenomenon that um, Kath Hicks referred to as a chaos theory, but which uh, Steve Bannon has referred to as throwing against the wall and seeing what sticks. And um, this administration absolutely does embrace that as a way of doing business um, in a way that all of us who were trained in whatever graduate schools we were trained in would be absolutely ashamed to admit in public we embraced as a way of conducting foreign policy. And um, again, I don't think we yet are at the end of understanding what it means to do policy for the world's largest military and world's largest economy that way. But um, it sure looks like we're going to find out. Um, the next point I would make about the policymaking environment is that over the last decade, we saw major, major change in the polarization of American foreign policy, that we went from even as late as 2008, and certainly still um, in 2002, 2004, national security was really the last area of American political life that had resisted partisan polarization, and where it was very, very hard to distinguish um, along ideological lines. And it flipped in pretty much the space of the Obama administration, uh, and 2016 in particular, from being one of the least polarized areas to being one of the most polarized areas in American life. So that there are now major, major questions of national security, um, like Russia, like Israel, where your position is almost totally predictable by your partisan affiliation. Um, and that's really not something we've experienced in, in the US in the, in the modern era. Um, and even in areas where that's not the case, trade policy being one of them, you've still seen significant polarization. So um, this opens up an opportunity for any president to, to make much more use of foreign and national security policy for political ends. Um, and here again, I would say, um, 
every president has certainly used national security policy for political ends, and particularly since 9-11, it has been um, irresistible for politicians of both parties to lean very heavily on national security as a political tool. Um, this White House has taken it to an entirely new level in both um, fulfilling campaign, making and fulfilling campaign promises in the national security policy arena for really almost uniquely domestic partisan ends. Um, and that development is going to change not just the options for this administration, but the options for every administration that follows it for quite some time. Um, to it's it's very confusing, um, you know, sort of how are we going to do Russia policy, for example? Um, how are we going to escape partisanship on Russia policy? To name to name just one. Um, and that has really completely shifted the policy environment, completely shifted the way we have conversations in think tanks, completely shifted the way the Hill is able to work together on policy issues. Um, and so that, I think, is, a, is another aspect that is, that is not often talked about in the, in the national security realm. And the last point I'll make um, as an introductory one is, again, um, the personal, the idiosyncratic, the sheerly self-interested always plays a much larger role in um, presidential decision-making than we like to admit on the academic side. Um, it's the case for every president. I worked for Bill Clinton in his second term, and you know, it was a difficult time. Um, however, uh, they're really, again, you have to go quite far back in the pre-modern era of American politics to find a president where um, his international interlocutors believed that his personal financial interests affected his decision making. Um, and it is quite clear that our international counterparts believe that very strongly and are making their own decisions accordingly. Um, it is similarly quite clear, as it is reported in the press over and over again, that, I mean, the President Trump is not the first president of whom it has been said he is swayed by the last person he hears, but it's never been said quite this many times or in quite this public a way. So you now have um, the entire American policy-making apparatus and the international apparatus shifting away from a kind of interests and structures-based assessment of how policy is made and how they can influence policy to a personalized and self-interest-driven um, view of how policy is made. And I want to hasten to say, I am, I am someone who will say to you, American policy has always been self-interested, but the lens of what the self-interest is has gotten narrower and narrower and narrower. And again, this has enormous consequences for how we Americans see our government, how others see our government, and how others who want to influence or deter or incentivize our government act, um, which is going to result in a whole new growth of structures and informal institutions. Um, which, just as my final point, I will say, are not going to resemble very much the institutions that we like to think of a functioning rule of law democracy having. 
and I'll stop there. Great, thanks. Uh, so my remarks are going to be a little shorter, mostly because I uh, only knew I was going to be doing this for the last uh, two and a half hours. So thanks uh, for giving me, uh, and thanks to Gene for inviting me to talk about this. The good news is I, uh, I have been thinking about one aspect of this discussion. Uh, my friend Jacob Halbern, the editor of the National Interest, had asked me to be part of a symposium on the deep state. And so I want to just limit my comments for the next few minutes to, to what that is and what I think about it. Um, if we think about sort of one aspect of this is a, uh, a set of institutions or people or, or norms of behavior within um, established foreign policymaking circles that are um, uh, sort of resistant to public pressures or more dramatically resistant to elections, right? That, that, that are the reason why our foreign policies do not change even though the heads of state do change every four or eight years, some would explain by the deep state. Um, and that goes beyond merely inertia. Uh, uh, Mike Glennon, who spoke here at Cato a couple years ago, calls it double government. It's the notion that, um, that uh, in sort of irrespective of who happens to sit in the Oval Office, uh, there are a group of people who con uh, conduct US foreign policy and they're um, uh, sort of Disdainful might be a little bit too strong a word, but but perhaps not of sort of the wishes of the public. So I just want to focus my comments just for a few minutes on that. Um, and it's not just inertia. So as someone who's been pretty critical of U.S. foreign policy over the last seven decades, uh, across a, a broad swath, um, this is not a new concern. Uh, the founders, Madison, uh, Washington, among others, talked about a large national security state uh, being sort of harmful to liberty. Of course, Dwight Eisenhower's uh, farewell address in 1961 talked about the military-industrial complex, the rise of unwarranted influence. You should know the speech if you don't. Um, but the key part of uh, Eisenhower's speech was he said that only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of our various instruments of power to make sure that liberty and, and security prosper together. Uh, the trouble, of course, is that the public is neither alert nor knowledgeable, and that is uh, 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 understandable, given that they have lots of other more important things to do in their day-to-day -day life. This is rational ignorance on their part, which means that the conduct of foreign policy, more so than other public policies, is left in the hands, uh, Glennon calls them the Trumanites, or that is a sort of network of um, uh, several hundred people who are responsible for conducting uh, U.S. foreign policy. Um, the um, sort of the most succinct uh, expression of sort of this uh, notion that uh, U.S. foreign policy should be, if not uh, impervious to, at least resistant to the wishes of the public, uh, was uh, Dean Acheson, Truman Secretary of State, who said, quote, if you truly had a democracy and did what the people wanted, you'd go wrong every time, unquote. Now, again, I think Atchison was merely being a little too candid, um, but I also believe it's true that Trump tapped into this sense among uh, many Americans that they wanted uh, something different from their foreign policy and consistently weren't getting something different. So uh, that so we're a year into his into his presidency now, and uh, how do I assess what has happened? Uh, I would second my colleague Trevor Thrall's statement: is what we have gotten is more of the same, but just more more of the same. Uh, a very hawkish, militaristic, 
uh, primacy that is based on the threats to use force uh, or perhaps uh, someday the actual use, in, in a few instances, the actual use of force that does not reflect, I think, uh, the wishes of the public, which, which is uh, extremely skeptical of foreign military intervention. Um, um, now, the, then the question is, well, why? Why has President Trump not governed as he campaigned? Um, one explanation is uh, that he merely tapped into public sentiment but never intended to follow through. After all, he claimed falsely to have always opposed the Iraq war. We know that's not true, but he, but again, so maybe he wasn't actually as committed to, to not uh, using the military as he implied, and there were other elements of his campaign which suggested that he was quite enamored of the use of the military, not least calling for enormous increases in the size of the military. Why do you need a larger military? if you're going to use it less. But I don't think that's necessarily the, the correct explanation. Uh, the, the other explanation is that he's simply not as interested in this particular topic and is focusing elsewhere, and therefore the conduct of foreign policy is being run at lower levels, as Heather alluded to. I think I disagree a little bit with Heather on that, but I'm going to come back. We can discuss that in the, in the Q&A or subsequent discussion. Uh, the last argument for why President Trump hasn't necessarily governed as he campaigned is the establishment blob deep state's explanation, which is the policies that he railed against were clearly the correct policies, and he realized upon uh, sitting behind the resolute desk that he was wrong as a, can as a candidate, and, and, and therefore indirectly, uh, that the public was wrong. Uh, and the clearest example of this, I think, and the saddest example of all, is his decision with respect to Afghanistan. Um, just a few very quick quotes from his speech announcing the decision to leave U.S. forces in Afghanistan indefinitely. Um, he admitted, the American people were wary of war. I shared the American people's frustration. My original instinct, he said, was to pull out, and historically I like to follow my instincts. But all of my life I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. So for the deep state, for the, the foreign policy establishment, that is their favorite line of this administration, which is the reason why policies persist is not by inertia. It's not because of the, uh, the disdain that the, that the national security state and the, the people who occupy it feel for the public sentiment, but simply that public sentiment is wrong and that therefore the president should continue to ignore what the public thinks. I am not particularly sensitive or sympathetic to that argument because after all, we're the ones paying for these wars and some of us sadly are sending our sons and daughters or brothers and whatnot to fight in them. So that's what I'll, uh, I'll leave with that and we can continue the discussion later. Bruce, Brian. Thank you for uh, having me. It's always good to be at Cato um, and it was a pleasant surprise to be speaking next to my friend Chris, although I'm about to say some very mean things about his argument, I can assure you we are actually friends. And I'll, I'll get to the deep state stuff at the tail end of my remarks. Um, but first, you know, just sticking to the topic of the panel, the process. Every president gets the process he deserves, the national security decision-making process. It tends to reflect him, his personality, his decision-making style. And so you have to understand this president's character before you can then talk about the process. And before I go on, I'll say that I am not a Republican, I am not a Democrat, I actually find things to despise in both parties, so nothing I'm about to say is um, partisan, uh, or at least not in my mind anyway. So the first thing you have to understand about Trump is he has no ideology, he just has antithesis. He has things that he does not like. Uh, he is very intelligent, 
but at the same time, he's also very ignorant and deliberately so. And he is also, and again, I don't say this in a pejorative sense, this is according to many uh, well-regarded mental health professionals, probably a psychopath, uh, purely in a clinical sense. Um, so it's very difficult to tell when he's making a decision if it's just because he does not like someone or if he is being canny or if he doesn't know what he's talking about or if he is actually not in full control over his behavior and his decisions. And that makes it very hard to tailor a process around the president, a formal process. Uh, and it explains a lot of the things that we see. Um, but there is definitely an informal process. So you have the process that McMaster, the National Security Advisor, has tried to build that mostly doesn't work. And to try to keep that process on the rails, you see a lot of personal interventions by Secretary of Defense Mattis, who's a man who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. But, um, and I'm sure that he's done a lot of things to stop nutty decisions from being made. But it's really been through these per personal interventions uh, and his personal relationship with the president, which is said to be quite strong. Although, as we've seen with Trump before, that is not something we can bank on for the rest of his presidency, because it could change in the middle of my speech. So I don't, you know, while I like Mattis a lot, you can't, I don't buy into the sort of Mattis we trust argument about keeping everything going. And I will say that I agree with Chris that where we've been going actually hasn't been working that well. And so maybe we shouldn't be wanting to keep where we're going, but more on that later. So, um, and you know, the, just on the Fox, Fox and Friends argument, you know, that is not an aberration from the process. That is, act, Fox and Friends is a part of this president's national security decision-making process in practice. And other countries and other interested parties and vested interests have figured that out and try to leverage that. Because if you want the president to pay attention to something, make sure it ends up a segment on Fox and Friends. And it's obvious that that's happening. So how is this process working? Uh, you know, as Chris pointed out, and, and my friend Pat Porter wrote this great article uh, for Texas National Security Review, which is a, a new journal that we just launched with the University of Texas. He titled it, um, oh no, we just ran that one in Warner Rocks, never mind. Um, Traditions, Quiet Victories. If you look at a lot of the major muscle moves, a lot of the major decisions, whether you're talking about Afghanistan, whether you're talking about what he's actually done with NATO, not what he said, um, things like that, it's, it's mostly been very traditional. The only part that he's really upended tradition on his international trade. Um, and of course, his rhetoric, tone, uh, personal behavior. But if you look at the policy decisions, you see a lot of, a lot of the same. Um, but I don't think this is because of the deep state. And this is where I'm gonna launch into attack mode a little bit. <laughs> I think that is a highly irresponsible term to use, and I'll tell you why. So I you know, used to study Turkey for a living when I, back when I was trying to finish a doctorate, which didn't work out. Um, but uh, that term comes from the Turkish context, where it was meant to describe an alliance between organized crime, far-right nationalists, and uh, intelligence officers, some journalists, and military, rogue military officers, who were killing people, trafficking in drugs, and trying to enact a very far-right vision of the Turkish state. So to transpose that to the United States, which is what we see now, because it looks great on the Fox News uh, crawl beneath the screen, but it actually has no analytical value to describe what we're seeing. It, it, shed, it, it provides a lot of heat and absolutely no light on what we're seeing. The study of bureaucracy is over 100 years old, and every term and everything we could possibly want to describe about what's happening now in our government and other institutions can be found in that field. They're just not as sexy. Uh, things like inertia, things like 
resistance to reform, entrenched uh, practices. These are large organizations that, are, that change slowly in part because they're designed to change slowly. Uh, some of it also has to do with government hiring practices and how it's hard to fire people and it's hard to hire people. Um, and some of it has to do with this administration's decisions to not staff the government, which I actually don't think is a deliberate strategy to starve the State Department because you see it even in parts of the government that the president wants to use more effectively. I think it is just because the president doesn't want to deal with it. And in the national security space, there were two publications that published these open letters. Mine was one of them, where a lot of people, con Republicans, condemned the president, who became the president during the primaries, and they made themselves unhirable. Um, and so I don't think this is a deliberate strategy, but it does explain why, in part, the president has not been able to get his way or, you know, I shouldn't even say get his way, because I actually don't think he cares, but um, see through his expressed policy preferences back when he was campaigning. Um, so I think this term deep state, and it's not surprising to me that the national interest is the publication that's running a symposium on this, um, but uh, it's really irresponsible and it's really corrosive and it should really bother you no matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you want to criticize the government, fine. Read you know, some of the stuff that Reagan said when he was running for president. He was very critical of the bureaucracy and a lot of those things were deserved, but this is going way too far, uh, you know, uh, and I think it's very irresponsible. I mean, Dulles, when he, when he was Secretary of State, you should read his first speech as Secretary of State to the Foreign Service officers down at Foggy Bottom. It was vicious. It made a lot of the, some of the same accusations, but this is going way too far, and this is meant to demonize dedicated civil servants largely, who are not holdovers from a previous administration. They're really just trying to do their jobs. Maybe they're not doing it very well. Chris and I shared a lot of the same concerns about the direction of American foreign policy. Afghanistan's a, a great one. And I do think that where we are now politically is in part related to us being involved in wars that are in Muslim countries that have not been explained to the, to the, um, to the American populace in a persuasive, interesting, or credible way by our political leaders on both sides of the aisle. But uh, Anyway, I'll open it up to Q&A. Uh, Chris, I'll, I'll, I'll let you respond to that if mm -hmm. you want to, but I, uh, I actually have comments, questions sort of on topic uh, because you, you I, I was also going to, to bring up the Michael Glennon book that gets at some of these, these issues. Uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with this book, uh, we had a forum for it uh, at Cato a couple of years ago, national security and double government. Uh, and it's an attempt uh, to explain, he, he asks very early on in the introduction, uh, why does national security policy remain constant even when one president is replaced by another who as a candidate repeatedly, forcefully, and eloquently promised fundamental changes in that policy. Now, of course, uh, writing in 2015, Glennon was talking about the transition from uh, George W. Bush to Obama. Uh, Obama running as a critic of the imperial presidency, a uni uni unitary executive theory, presidential unilateralism, um, and then uh, continuing uh, to a large extent, uh, most of uh, Bush policies in the war on terror uh, with regard to drone strikes, uh, uh, detention, uh, most things other than uh, torture. Um, and uh, I think this is an interesting question to, to look at. I, I jotted down 
uh, to first explore how much continuity is there and how much difference, I, I jotted down uh, you know, some of the uh, major Trump foreign policy uh, points of comparison. Uh, for things that are where there's continuity, uh, probably uh, targeted killing, drone strikes, uh, the various theaters of war that Trump inherited from Barack Obama, um, use of special forces, so-called light footprint warfare, um, the uh, war against ISIS. I think uh, Trevor's uh, uh, formulation, more of the same but more, is uh, describes much of this. Uh, Afghanistan, uh, in between change and continuity, certainly not our first, probably more change, but we certainly not our first uh, surge and certainly one of the smaller ones. Um, so from that perspective, most of those policies, uh, uh, there's more leeway for commanders on the ground, for uh, the generals, less uh, lawyerly examination of uh, targeting decisions, but a lot of continuity. Uh, then where there are differences, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you all can come up with, with more, but uh, the uh, drive-by airstrike against uh, the airfield in Syria uh, back in April, um, the decision to go, go ahead with arms sales from the Ukraine. Uh, when you look at uh, the direction of policy and try to abstract away from uh, this endlessly distracting Twitter feed, if you just had the three by five card, uh, is there more continuity than change? And uh, if so, what's driving that? Are the changes, would they better predicted by uh, what Trump said on the uh, campaign trail or uh, what uh, national security professionals writ large uh, would advise a president to do. And I, I would say, I, yeah, I, I think maybe we uh, deep state, uh, there, there may be more agreement between you yeah. guys than, than there is on substance than over terminology. If I recall correctly, uh, Glennon kind of shies away from the term deep state. And what he's talking about is not a a conspiracy, it's a, a, a lot of people whose uh, professional interests and views uh, tend in the same direction. Uh, so I, I have just violated the first rule I'm gonna give uh, to you all when you ask questions, which is make them questions, not speeches. But uh, before we go to audience questions, uh, just open it up for, for comments to, to any of you uh, as to uh, what do you make of uh, the, the Glennon thesis that uh, the, uh, the national security network, he calls them Trumanites, uh, is the driver ultimately where the buck stops in some ways. And even though you get presidents who seem to have very different perspectives, you get an enormous amount of continuity in policy. What do you make of how much change versus how much continuity, is that true? Um, and what do you make of Glennon's non-deep state but Trumanite permanent bureaucracy quasi-public choice explanation of that? And for anyone in 
Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the problem I have with the the bureaucratic argument is that it overlooks that there are very real um, political and in, particularly in the case of this president, financial incentives um, that, you know, sort of when, it, when Chris, you were ticking through your reasons for why a president would come into the Oval Office and change mm -hmm. his or her views, one of the very good reasons to, to, to do that is that he or she would get something for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, to take Afghanistan first, because that's in some ways the most puzzling of these, um, it's my perception that Trump judged Afghanistan to be the bone that he had to throw um, McMaster in particular, mm -hmm. but also a certain amount of the Pentagon, um, his generals. Right in order to continue to have their willingness to sort of be around and be, if not enthusiastic, at least uncomplaining supporters of his administration. And that's very, and you know, I agree with Ryan, I don't think he does care about Afghanistan, mm -hmm. but he cares an awful lot about having the guys with the shiny chest stand next to him. And if that was the price, he right. was willing to pay it. Yeah. Um, so just in general, I think, and I, we could go through, and, and you know, similarly with, with Obama, why did Obama change his views? He changed his views because he couldn't get done the things he wanted to get done. Um, right. so, so I just, I, I, I think um, it's, all, it's very nice to sort of fantasize about the, the power of the bureaucracy, but there's a more obvious set of, of political powers right in front of us. Um, the other point I would make on the, the change in continuities that I think we, we gloss over too easily, and I wanna say this without, um, without appearing to be naive about how good things were before 2016, um, but we have lost a great deal of the already totally insufficient amount of transparency we had into what um, our armed forces and our intelligence forces are doing in our name and with our dollars and with our kids' lives around the world. So we've already lost a lot of that in just one year. Um, the uh, yes, um, Trump didn't invent light footprint warfare, but the dramatic ratcheting up in light footprint warfare and the much ballyhooed, now we're gonna take the gloves off and let the commanders do what they need to do to win, that I believe there have been more, there were more civilian casualties in the fight against ISIS in 2017 than there were in the Absolutely. entire. And yes, the final fight against ISIS in Iraq was always going to be very brutal, but we have no way of judging because of the previous point I mentioned. So that to me is a, a thing that is not a continuity. The, um, the total and utter collapse of our oversight system, um, because again, the party of the president judges that it's not, it's not expedient to conduct oversight because it's so potentially politically damaging. That's, I mean, again, that system has been in very serious ill health since 9-11. That's not a new development, but we've kind of gone over the cliff. And then the last discontinuity, which I think we, we have to put on the table in these conversations, is the extent to which our national security policy is put, has been put in the service of, of ethno-nationalism. And that our national security policy is now inseparable from our immigration policy, from our refugee policy, and from some very explicit um, racially charged, if not just full-on racial 
ideation of what it means to be an American. And that, again, not saying that American foreign policy was ever particularly perfect in this regard, but uh, this, is a big, this is a big discontinuity. Right. Um, I, I agree with, uh, I, I don't want to add anything to that. I want to, I'll pick up on just two points. One that you made with respect to continuity versus change. I agree with you, Heather, that um, the difference in the numbers of civilians killed as a result of US uh, air campaigns against ISIS and elsewhere in the greater Middle East um, is not merely a sense of, of continuity. This is where, where the, a difference of degree actually is a difference in kind, okay? And again, I think the president was fairly explicit on this, bomb the blank out of them. Uh, you know, so in that sense, he, he is following through on what he said he was gonna do in the course of the campaign, which is not really trouble himself with which civilians get killed in the course of US bombing campaign. So this is actually pretty consistent. The one thing that I wanna come back to from the very first thing you said, Heather, is I disagree a little bit that we're seeing uh, a, a devolution of power away from the White House, which would be a, a change in the trend that we've seen over the last couple of years. I think that in fact, the Pentagon and DOD is an exception to that, mm -hmm. that the Pentagon and DOD is having less oversight and control other than they've been given a clear signal from the President of the United States that, that he doesn't care if lots of civilians are killed in the process of US military operations. But this is also the President who has apparently queried senior Department of Justice officials on who they voted for and, and alleged that if uh, you know, members of the FBI and the Department of Justice and other you know, US attorneys and whatnot, uh, these are professionals, these are career professionals, these are not partisan people, but if they have not indicated a personal loyalty to him, then therefore their, their conduct is, is somehow questionable. And this lastly gets to your, to your point, Ryan, as I agree, the deep state, there, it had a particular meaning in the context of Turkey, especially, and that's not what we're dealing with here. And so the allegations of wrongdoing and or casting doubt on the conduct of established US, secure, US institutions um, is, is deeply corrosive and dangerous, and I completely agree with you. Um, I want to touch on one thing about the transition from, you know, because I think we're being a little too nice to Obama here. Um, and I know you gave the caveats about I'm not idealizing what came before, but there is a little bit of that going on. Uh, not just you, but everyone right now. Is The war we waged in Afghanistan was incredibly bloody and ruthless, and a lot of that wasn't even reported. Um, not the things where there, there's no cover-ups. It's just there's not a reporter everywhere there, where there's the war going on. And, it's a pretty brutal place. And, and I, the common narrative is that Obama, early in his first term, got rolled by the military into doing the surge. And I don't think that's actually correct. Uh, and I don't think that's a case of double government. There might have been some of that in there. But Obama created, a, and the Democrats more broadly. So the Democrats have had this political problem since the late 70s where they've appeared weak on defense and weak on national security issues. Yeah, and I'm not saying this is the fact, this, this is just how they were painted. So Obama was running and he needed to be tough on defense, he needed to look like a protector. And he worked very hard to do that in terms of political communication. He ran on Afghanistan as the good war, let's not forget that in 2000, uh, you know, 2008. And um, he also ran against Guantanamo Bay. Um, so that led to a few things. Is one, a pretty ruthless counterterrorism policy to make sure he kept America safe. As you know, drone technology, uh, as, as armed drone technology, I should say, matured. Uh, he used that to great effect and killed lots of people all over the world. Yeah, great effect in the sense that he killed lots of people, not that he reduced the threat of terror. Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. And he, it also conveniently 
Um, and I'm not saying this is the conversation they were having in the West Wing, like, hey, it's nice that we don't have any detainees because we're just killing all these people. But it, it is, you know, it did work out that way. So they didn't have their own Guantanamo Bay problem because they weren't capturing these people for the most part, except for in Afghanistan. Um, and then, you know, the other issue is that we have this problem that transcends both parties and it infects our entire society is that we're still sort of afflicted by this implicit belief in modernization theory that we can go out and remake societies by giving them democracies and stuff. And even though Obama gave speeches about how bounded our goals were in Afghanistan, they weren't really bounded in practice and how they were implemented. Um, so I just wanted to make, make those points.